Hello and welcome to the December edition of the Amy and Flo Talking Magazine show. I'm Amy and with me in the home office is my mum Florence. Hello everybody and uh, a very happy Christmas happy to you. Christmas. This is our Christmas edition. It we is. hope you enjoy it. It's a Christmas special. Uh-huh. And uh, for anybody out there that's thinking, I don't feel the Christmas spirit, I just don't feel it. Look, you're not alone. There's a lot of us don't really feel the Christmas spirit. <laughs> yeah, just not feeling it just yet. But um, I, I am confident it will it will come. It will arrive all at once. Well, I did deliver all Amy's presents in a big Christmas bag today. And um, um, she is all mine ready. Yeah. So, uh, and the Christmas tree's up and it's, it's looking very South Belfast. Uh, blue and silver. I have, I have a palm tree in my front garden decorate it with lights going all the way up the the trunk of the palm tree it's very florida it is it's very florida it is indeed <laughs> well folks uh we've got a christmas quiz so i mean you couldn't let christmas go by without having a christmasy quiz i feel like i've had enough christmases that i'm bound to be really good at a christmas quiz oh I mean, how, that's a gauntlet thrown how down bad, there how bad can i possibly be at <laughs> christmas knowledge well i hope you're good because i think today is the feast of saint nicholas yeah yeah i think so so here we go first question we are all familiar with the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, but don't worry, I'm not going to ask you okay. what my true love sent to me on the ninth day of okay, Christmas, but, yeah. but what date does the first day of Christmas actually fall on? Is it A, the 1st of December, B, the 12th of December, or C, the 25th of December? What is actually the first day of of Christmas. 1st of December, 12th of December, 25th of December. Okay? Okay. Okay. Right. Pine needles are said to be rich in what vitamin? Now, I'm not suggesting you go and rip them off your Christmas tree <laughs> to get some vitamins. Chewing it's, on them tonight. It, go it, on. It's, it's easier just to go to Boots and buy some. Pine needles are said to be rich in what vitamin? A, B, C, or D. That's that's your choice. <laughs> those, those A, B, C, or D. Vitamin that's the A, vitamins. vitamin B, vitamin, vitamin C, C, vitamin D. D. Okay? Okay. Okay. Well, apart from children, St. Nicholas, aka Santa Claus, is a patron saint of which of the following dubious occupations? Prostitution. Thievery and pirating. Apart from being the patron saint of children, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, is the patron saint of what? Prostitutes, thieves, or pirates? Arr, Jimmy, <laughs> lad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. The 12 days of Christmas is one of the most popular carols of the season. But how many gifts had actually been sent by the true love by the end of the 12th day of Christmas. Oh. Was it A, 264 gifts, B, 364 gifts, or C, 
464 gifts. Ugh, the 12 days of Christmas. You don't actually have to remember what was sent on each no. of those days, just that there are 12 days of Christmas and many gifts were received. 264, 364 or 464. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. And there is a mathematical way of doing it, yeah. which I will tell you at the end. Okay. Which of the following reindeer from the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, was not one of the original eight reindeers named in the poem? A. Cupid, B. Dasher, or C. Rudolph? Which of the following reindeer from the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, was not an original reindeer named in it. A. Cupid, B. Dasher, or C. Rudolph. Okay. That uh, is uh, the Christmas quiz Ugh. for you to conjugate. Yeah, I will have to consider my options on some of those things, and I don't have any great hope that I'll be able to answer the uh, maths question, but I'll... I'll give it a go. Okay. Well, of what have you got for give us? Give it a go. All right. Well, do you know what, Christmas? Um, there, there's a tradition of a ghost story at Christmas. There is. And I had this story selected uh, back for Halloween and then just didn't get around to reading it. And I was about to put it in the bin. And then I thought, no, it's a ghost story. And Christmas is all about ghost, ghost stories. So um, I want to tell you about the man who owns... England's most haunted cottage. Mm. This is um, a man called Tim Chilton who told his story to Guardian Experience. So he says, In 1999, I was in my mid-40s and had just escaped from my stressful and joyless career as a management consultant. I needed a project. I loved small period buildings and decided to throw my energy into restoring one. I started combing through auction catalogues in search of a place. You see in a theme here with my stories. I keep picking people that buy houses at auctions and the terrible things that can go wrong. He says, having failed to win a number of London houses that didn't much inspire me anyway, I cast the net wider. My father would often give me advice over the phone. He persuaded me to focus on Derbyshire a county my family had a strong connection to and helped me identify what my ideal houses would be like. Stone built, a south-facing garden with at least two bedrooms and a workshop. One night we'd just finished a long conversation about this elusive dream home when my dad, a healthy 75-year-old, had a heart attack. He died instantly. I didn't look at any more auction catalogues until after the funeral. When I did, I spotted Lowe's Cottage straight away. Located in the Derbyshire Dales village of Upper Mayfield, it was built late in the 18th century by a stonemason who needed a home with a workshop. It seemed exactly like the place my father had described. I drove out to view it the day before the auction. The cottage was approached approached over the ominously titled Hanging Bridge and Gallows Tree Lane. The house itself was named after a nearby Iron Age burial mound. Perhaps I should have felt a sense of foreboding, especially when the agent wouldn't let me use my video camera inside the house. 
but the cottage had everything I'd been looking for with the added attraction of bewitching Peak District views. I was delighted by it. The following day, I turned up at the auction to find a camera crew present and a tangible buzz in the room. The hammer came down after I'd bid £6,000 over the guide price. I barely had time to process the fact that I'd won before I was ushered into an anti-room full of reporters. A microphone <laughs> was thrust towards oh me and someone asked, how does it feel to have bought England's most haunted cottage? Oh no. <laughs> I had no idea of the house's reputation. There was no hint of it in the description, but I was quickly brought up to speed. A couple, Andrew and Josie Smith, who had bought Lowe's Cottage in 1994, had filed a lawsuit against the previous owners for not telling them the property was haunted. <laughs> The Smiths claimed they had been driven out by a number of manifestations, including something they described as a creeping presence, like a mist that appeared and thickening into fog. They spoke of sudden pockets of cold, damp patches on the wall and objects inexplicably moving. Their claims were backed up by a vicar who investigated the cottage and said he found a pungent odour that moved around and a wall that seemed to weep when he placed his hand on it. It was reported to be the first case relying on the existence of supernatural forces since the Middle Ages, but the judge gave the Smiths' claim short shrift. During my first night in Lowe's Cottage, I started to have some sympathy for my predecessors. My collie, Sion, was uneasy entering the house and found it hard to settle. Lights switched off and on. There were sudden changes in temperature and my TV would turn itself on. There were further incidents. I was visited by reporters who experienced problems with tape recorders or cameras. I remembered the agent who had forbidden filming when I first visited and when mysterious patches of glistening moisture started forming on the walls, I recalled the vicar's description of a weeping wall. It felt almost as if Lowe's Cottage had a personality and was testing me in some way. The place seemed capable of changing moods, though I never had any sense of a malignant entity. I later got to meet the Smiths and find them to be solid and authentic people. After a while, Sion seemed to make peace with the house and the perplexing incident stopped. I spent a happy four years at the cottage before renting it out. Only one of the tenants has reported anything unusual. In the months after the auction, some people told me the house would be a blessing to me and they were right. In spite of its notoriety, I'm very grateful to Lowe's Cottage. Seemingly prophesied by my father, it acted as a pivot between an unhappy time in my life and a more fulfilling existence, restoring period properties. There you go, so, you see. Imagine 
Imagine showing up and buying a house at auction and then all of the journalists weigh in. <laughs> that might I be uh, 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 uh. Yeah. Well, you see, that's my gate lodge has got that reputation too, you mm-hmm. know It has. <laughs> and there's so many people stop me and say, oh, do you live in that wee gate lodge? It's haunted, isn't it? And I do say, no, it is not haunted. The only thing that haunts it is me at two o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep having a cup of tea in the stairs. <laughs> but I'm not being... Yep. Totally true, because there has been a few odd things, but not malignant, or mm-hmm. just a few odd things, really. Now, lots of you will be buying presents for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and uh, it's true that the most popular toy, really, again this year, and most years, really, is, what do you think, Amy? It's Lego, isn't it? It is Lego. It is always Lego. And uh, it's a brilliant toy. Mm -hmm. And it's even used by companies who want their employees to be creative. And uh, lots of big companies uh, actually do build microscopes out of them and use their technicians to, because there there is a big space telescope somebody built with it. And there's a... And there's out of Lego, and there's a microscope in one of the hospitals in England has been built yeah. completely out of Lego with all the working bits in it. So when I found this little bit, I thought, well, that's interesting. Christmas tree made of over 364,000 bricks goes up on display at Legoland. A Christmas tree made of nearly four 400,000 plastic bricks has gone on display at Legoland. The construction at the Windsor Attraction in England is made up of 364,481, they're very precise, Lego and uh, Duplo blocks, and it stands at nearly 33 foot tall. Paula Lochran, the resort's chief model maker, said, We're really excited for what is set to be one of Lego Land's Windsor's biggest Christmas celebrations. Yet, uh, as our guests and their families plan to make up for lost time and enjoy some uh, magical memory, making this winter, which they couldn't do because of restrictions last year. And nothing marks the start of getting into the festive season spirit more than putting up the Christmas tree. And our giant tree is made entirely out of thousands of Lego and Duplo blocks and will leave families all inspired by its size and intricate detail. And I'm showing Amy a picture yeah. of it there. It's great, wow. isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is brilliant. Do you know what? It's so much better than the Belfast City Christmas, Christmas tree. tree. <laughs> Just say, I was in town last Thursday. Uh, the tree was lit up in the Christmas market and a sad, skinny oh. article of a thing it oh is indeed. Dear. Not, not see, They impressed. usually got it from Norway and they're probably not allowed this I year. I don't know. Couldn't get it across the Irish Sea border. That's probably what happened. <laughs> and so when I saw this other little bit, Lego looted, <laughs> which is maybe what would have happened had they built the Christmas tree in Belfast. <laughs> that would have looted. Lego looted. German police are piecing together <laughs> the theft of dozens of Lego sets after burglars broke through the wall of a toy shop. It happened in the western town of Lipstadt and the burglars left about a 100 empty cardboard boxes behind the news agency DPA reported. And it is not immediately clear whether the burglars had also taken the instruction manuals. <laughs> <laughs> If you get in Germany, if somebody offers you a little uh, cheap Lego, you know, you know what I mean? Wink, wink. (laughs) 
bag of random Lego bricks. You won't get yeah. the instruction manuals probably no. with it. Now, usually our miscreants here are um, people, right? Right. But in this case, and this is something I didn't know, and this is pretty disgusting, I think, 2.1 million award to a woman accused of shoplifting after there was a fault with the scanner. An Alabama woman falsely arrested for shoplifting at a Walmart and then threatened by the company after her case was dismissed has been awarded uh, 2.1 million damages in dollars. A mobile county judge ruled in favour of Leslie Nurse of Sands on Monday, the news outlets reported. Miss Nurse said in a lawsuit that she was stopped in November 2016 when trying to leave a Walmart with groceries she said she'd already paid for, according to AI.com. She said she used the self-checkout counter service, but the scanning device froze. The workers did not accept her explanation and she was arrested for shoplifting. Miss Nurse's case was dismissed a year later. But then she received letters from a Florida law firm threatening a civil suit unless she paid $200 as a settlement, according to the lawsuit. That was more than the cost of the groceries that she'd originally been accused of stealing. Miss Nurse said Walmart instructed the law firm to send the letters and that she was not the only one receiving them. The defendants have engaged in a pattern and practice of falsely accusing innocent Alabama citizens of shoplifting and thereafter attempting to collect money from the innocently accused, the suit contended. WKRG reported that the trial featured testimony that Walmart and other major retailers routinely use such settlements in states where the law allows it and that Walmart made hundreds of millions of dollars this way in a two-year period. Defence lawyers for Walmart said the practice is legal in Alabama, and a spokesperson told AI.com that the company will be filing motions in this case because it does not believe the verdict is supported by the evidence and the damages awarded exceed what is allowed by law. Oh, Isn't that terrible? That is ridiculous. That awful? Walmart being and such a huge billion oh. dollar company. And they're making millions out of innocent people by deliberately accusing them of shoplifting. That's and then awful. looking for 200. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> so a mosaic from Caligula's floating pleasure palace was actually being used as a coffee table what? for 45 years. Wow. This is from uh, the Vintage Times. So it says, A priceless, long-lost piece of ancient Roman history has finally been found. The once-missing artefact was a Roman mosaic that once decorated one of Emperor Caligula's pleasure ships during his time as Roman Emperor. Its discovery is genuinely a one-in-a-million story that's almost as bizarre as Caligula's floating pleasure palaces. <laughs> Dario del Bufalo is an Italian expert on ancient stone and marble. In 2013, 
Del Buffalo was in New York City doing a book signing and a lecture on his book Porphyry. As Del Buffalo recounted to 60 Minutes correspondent Anderson Cooper, there was a lady with a young guy with a strange hat that came to the table and he told her, what a beautiful book. Oh, Helen, look, that's your mosaic. <laughs> Upon hearing this, Del Buffalo went up to the young pair who confirmed that Helen had the mosaic in question in her Manhattan apartment. Del Buffalo then tracked down Helen Fioratti, a well-known art dealer and gallery owner in New York. In a 2017 interview with the New York Times, Fioretti detailed how she'd ended up with the mosaic in the first place. Helen said that she and her husband, a journalist named Nero Fioretti, had brought, bought the mosaic in the late 1960s from an aristocratic Italian family. Helen Fioretti emphasised that it was an innocent purchase, but the mosaic turned coffee table was our favourite thing and we had it for 45 years. <laughs> Dozens of centuries before the mosaic served as a coffee table in a Manhattan apartment, it served as part of an inlaid floor on a party ship commissioned by Emperor Caligula before his assassination. Caligula was only Emperor of Rome for four years before he was killed. Still, his name has lived on in history due to his sadism, brutality and extremely expensive taste. In fact, records show that Caligula emptied the imperial treasury by throwing extremely extravagant games and spectacles. During his short reign as Emperor, Caligula built two sh ships on Lake Nemi in Italy at an enormous expense. These ships were essentially floating palaces, with one ship being the same length as an Airbus A380, or 240 feet long. The ships have been described as having 10 banks of oars, the poops of which blazed with jewels, filled with ample baths, galleries and saloons, and supplied with a great variety of vines and fruit. Caligula reportedly held parties on these ships, where he left his lust, let his lustful appetite run wild. It's said that Caligula would have orgies on these ships involving senators' wives and even his own sisters. After Caligula's assassination, 41 CE, his ships were likely sunk to erase any trace of his reign. They remained underwater until the 1920s when Benito Mussolini had the lake drained. Sadly, the German army burned the ships in 1944 as they were retreating out of Italy. However, Del Buffalo told Anderson Cooper that there was no fire damage on the coffee table mosaic, which suggests that the mosaic was either snuck out of a museum or was in a private collection following its extraction from Lake Nemi. The mosaic has since been returned to Italy, where it's now on display at the Museum of Roman Ships in Nemi. Del Buffalo sympathises with Helen Fioretti, as she has lost her favourite piece of art, and he's offered to make her a replica, telling Cooper, I really would do a copy for her exact copy. She could not tell the difference.
<laughs> well, she probably go. Yeah, I, I think she probably would. I mean, if I had an ancient Roman mosaic turned into a coffee table and someone took it off me and gave me a replica, I would know the difference. <laughs> I would. Well, no, we're not happy. Have to be said, it's better in the museum where more people can it's see it. it definitely I understand is. what you're saying, but I do. But uh, on a less expensive scale, but nevertheless an antique, the theft of a Victorian-era postbox in Donegal is described as unforgivable. Garda in County Donegal have appealed for the return of an unusual Queen Victorian postbox, which was stolen. The box, which is more than 120 years old, was one of a small number in the Republic of Ireland that predated partition but remained actually in use. Following the establishment of the new Free State and then Republic, post boxes were painted green as opposed to the red of the British post boxes. However, some retain the VR symbol for Victoria Regina, Queen Victoria, as well as the British Crown. Garda spokeswoman Gronya Doherty said the postbox, now owned by Anne Post, was taken from a pole in Finton. She urged anyone who came across the postbox for sale to contact Ballyshannon Garda Station. Donegal Sinn Féin councillor Jerry McMonagall described the theft as unforgivable. Council McMonagall urged whoever was behind the theft to return the postbox or let someone know where it was. We can't have people going around stealing public items such as post boxes and street signs, Councillor McMonagall said. And there's a picture of the VR postbox painted bright green. Yeah, that's that's. I reckon somebody melted it down for. That's in somebody's bar or somebody's garden. That's a very pretty postbox. Well, I hope it wasn't melted down for 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 metal like like the street signs. Obviously they been going missing through but uh, something else that uh, is up now it seems to be a whole host of walking sticks that keep yeah. going up for sale yes. <laughs> and this is Lord Ha Ha's walking stick going under the hammer in Belfast an auctioneer making a habit of selling walking sticks owned by historical figures is up at it again with one belonging to Nazi propagandist Lord Ha Ha Last month, Carl Bennett sold a stick used by Irish revolutionary leader Michael Collins for £52,000 and one owned by the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Sir James Craig, for £10,000. The latest lot to go under his hammer at Bloomfield Auction House in the east of Belfast reputedly belonged to William Joyce. Dubbed Lord Ha Ha, Joyce was notorious during the Second World War for broadcasting Nazi propaganda to the UK on radio, beginning his recordings from Hamburg with the famous phrase, Germany calling. He was captured and returned to Britain in 1945 and was hanged a year later for treason. Joyce was shot during his capture near the Danish border and Mr Bennett explained that a nurse who treated him was a woman called Mary Kerr, who was originally from Garva. He said Joyce gave Miss Kerr the walking stick as a token of his appreciation. Mr Bennett said he expected the item to sell for between £4,000 and £7,000. 
He said the auction house also has a copy of Miss Kerr's memoir and a copy of a letter she wrote about the walking stick. Other lots in the sale on Tuesday include a confessional screen that would have been used by prisoners in Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast during the Troubles. Let's estimate it to fetch between £2,000 and £3,000. There's also a medal from McKelvey GAC in Belfast, which was formed by members of the original IRA in 1924, and a dossier of old Royal Ulster Constabulary documents dating from 1932 to 1960. There are a variety of artworks in sale, including a biblical painting in the style of Rubens and a limited edition print signed L.S. Lowry. It always amazes me as to the many treasures that are hiding in people's homes and lofts that find their way here, said Mr. Bennett. Next week's auction will see people as uh, come as far and wide as well as via the internet to seek out these historical items for their own organisations or private collections. The walking stick belonged to Lord Haw Haw comes just weeks after the sale of walking sticks belonging to IRA commander Michael Collins and the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, James Craig. Alike Michael Collins and uh, James Craig's, this walking stick also comes with a phenomenal history alongside an interesting link to Northern Ireland through the nurse Mary Kerr. The confessional screen from Crumlin Road Jail, the RUC documents and the medal from McKelvey's GAC should drum up quite a bit of interest locally and it would be nice to see the confessional screen return to the jail as part of tourism history. So there you go. <laughs> that auction house have got a real speciality going there, haven't they? They really yeah, do. If you, if do. you have got any historically important walking sticks, Bloomfield Auctions, yes, isn't that who they go. are? Yep. Bloomfield Auctions are the place to go. And I've told you, just dig out now walking stick, Amy, and we'll, yeah. we'll do it up. <laughs> we'll say it belonged to somebody. You know, who would we say it belonged to? I don't know. Uh, Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale's walking stick. Yeah, we could say Florence Nightingale's walking stick. Yeah, and I could say yeah that that my grandfather was uh, in the war and they uh, kept that yeah. and that that she'd and given it to him to help him walk out of out of yeah, the Crimea. Out of the hospital. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, <laughs> that's, that's a story. That's a sort out for Bloomfield Here's a short story that is absolutely unrelated to Christmas or almost anything else, but this amused me no end. It's called The Heidi Game, and it's from uh, the Mindship blog that Donald Clancy does. Um, and it says, On November the 17th, 1968, it went down as one of the worst days in the history of television sports coverage in all history. The American Football League game between the Oakland Raiders and the New York Jets was broadcast live on NBC. The TV channel allocated a three-hour slot for coverage of games that rarely ran beyond two and a half hours. The TV schedule had a 7pm scheduled viewing of the TV adaptation of Heidi, the heartwarming tale of a Swiss orphan girl living in the Alps with her grumpy grandfather. There's also a girl in a wheelchair it's a classic children's tale. <laughs> Due to penalties, injuries and delays, the football match dragged on towards the cut-off point at the top of the hour. 
As the match dragged on, with the Jets in a narrow three-point lead against the odds, the fans began to panic. All over the country, football fans began to phone NBC to find out if they would continue to show the game. Meanwhile, concerned little girls were calling to find out if Heidi was at risk. The NBC switchboard went into meltdown, quite literally. There was such a high volume of traffic that the fuses blew not once, but 26 times in an hour. As a result, the senior NBC executives were unable to phone their own station to verbally countermand the standing order to screen the film. So with one minute on the clock, NBC viewers in Eastern and Central time zones lost their live feed of the game. (laughs) The Raiders then scored two converted touchdowns in the final minutes of the game and one of the most exciting and game-changing finales to a football match (laughs) in history. The TV station then went on to pour petrol on the fire by flashing up the final score (laughs) minutes into the Heidi movie to the frustration of the already apoplectic football fans and to the anger of Heidi fans. They did, did it at the highly emotional juncture just as Heidi's cousin stood up from her wheelchair to take her first step to recovery. (laughs) The Heidi game resulted in a change of policy which sees all games covered to their end. It also led to the installation of what are called Heidi phones, which are hotlines reserved for executive use. They're routed separately to the public exchange and allow station managers to bypass normal channels in emergencies. Wow! (laughs) So... Absolutely apropos to nothing, that story about football and Heidi, but it just uh, abused me no end. (laughs) Now, uh, here's a board game with a difference, but I'm not sure that anybody would run out and buy this board game for their children, the way they would uh, Monopoly or Scrabble or Operation or whatever one you were thinking about buying. It's definitely not Snakes and Ladders. Board game aims to teach about the troubles. The creator of an educational board game that focuses on the troubles hopes it will be an important learning tool. The Troubles Shadow War in Northern Ireland 1964-1998 is to be launched next year. Themed on the most recent conflict and the years leading up to it, the game for up to six players has been developed by Port Glasgow High School in English, teacher Hugh O'Donnell. The former programmer said that while completing his master's degree, he became aware that stories can be used as a powerful learning tool. In 2015, I started to look at board games and using them in the classroom as something new, as something that would support the kids that are probably less confident, less focal, allowing them to show their learning, show their literacy and their confidence by playing these games, he said. Players chose to control the provisional IRA, 
loyalists, security forces, and nationalists and unionist politicians. Well, that would be a change if we could control the politicians. Mr. O'Donnell said one aim is to force people to consider their actions. Games are generally fun. This thing has not been developed for fun. It's been designed as a tabletop simulation that challenges because of how sensitive the topic is, just like a film or a book or any sort of academic paper, he said. This is to try and give a physical environment that forces people to consider the consequences of the things that they are carrying out and using the stories to try and immerse and involve those that are playing it to inhabit the world and to look at it critically and rigorously rather than here is a board game, right? Who's going to be the IRA? Who's going to be the loyalists? That's what's going to happen. And the first person to expose the other is the winner. That's exactly what's going to happen. Uh-huh. Mr. O'Donnell says the game is set up to ensure that parliamentary groups are unable to win outright. Ah. Oh. That's a bit sport. The paramilitaries can't win, he said. They can't win unless they're brought to peace. Again, there is an engineered peace model there as well. The Belfast historian John O'Neill has written the foreword in a detailed historical supplement to accompany the game. The Troubles Shadow War in Northern Ireland, 1964-1998 by Compass Games is available to pre-order. There you go. Now, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. What you can't win, yeah. you have to come to some sort can of you, peace agreement before can you, you win. Can you imagine what that would have done to me at my attitude <laughs> to board games when I was growing up? <laughs> I, I was the classic only child with a board game. I could not lose that game. No, that game would spoil my happiness. <laughs> it's going to spoil a lot of people. No, I imagine like you have to choose a wee icon to represent yourself. What, a balaclava or an armalite? Or... I know somebody that loved that, that game. I'm going to oh. pre-order it for them for their birthday because I know somebody would love it. Yeah. Yes, you. <laughs> I've got it for your birthday at January. A game you can't win is definitely not the one for me. Okay. So what about a little piece of poetry for Christmas? I love Christmas poetry. Well, you will really love this Christmas poem because I know it's one of your favourites. So I'm going to dedicate this one to oh. Mum. It's A Christmas Childhood. By Patrick Kavanagh, and I, I hope I can do it justice. Poem. I hope I can do it justice. My father played the melodeon outside at our gate. There were stars in the morning east, and they danced to his music. Across the wild bogs, his melodeon called to Lennons and Callans. As I pulled on my trousers in a hurry. I knew some strange thing had happened. Outside in the cow house, my mother made the music of milking. The light of her stable lamp was a star, and the frost at Bethlehem made it twinkle. A water hen screeched in the bog, mass going feet crunched the water ice on the potholes, somebody wistfully twisted the bellows wheel. My child poet picked out the letters on a grey stone. In a sliver, the wonders of a Christmas townland, the winking glitter of a frosty dawn, 
Cassiopeia was over Cassidy's hanging hill. I looked and three wind bushes rode across the horizon, the three wise kings. An old man passing said, can't he make it talk? The melodian. I hid in the doorway and tightened the belt of my box-pleated coat. I nicked six nicks out of the doorpost with my penknife's big blade. There was a little one for cutting tobacco. And I was six Christmases of age. My father played the melodian, my mother milked the cows, and I had a prayer like a white rose pinned on the Virgin Mary's blouse. Oh, I love that so much. That is a real Christmassy picture. That is proper Irish Christmas. That's from Patrick Kavanagh, a proper Irish Christmas. Do you know what? I couldn't help but read it with a sort of Belfast accent, accent. though. And there is something about that poem and the Child's Christmas in Wales and other ones that just make you read them Mm -hmm. in... In, in the an way accent. they were meant to. Yeah, and exactly the way they were meant to. My favourite poem. Thank you for dedicating that one to me, Amy. Happy Christmas. Now, spoil my happiness uh, with your own quiz. Okay, with Come your on, own quiz. Bring your own nasty <laughs> quiz okay. on here. We're familiar with the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. But what date does the first day of Christmas actually fall on? Is it A, the 1st of December, B, the 12th of December, or C, the 25th of December? The first day of Christmas. My true love, don't do me. Now, I think it's because the last day of Christmas is the 6th of January, and if I were to work work back, um, I haven't worked it out, would that make it Christmas Day, the 25th? You're going for Christmas Day. I am going for Christmas You're Day. You're absolutely yes. correct. Thank the you. The Christian Church holds Christmas Day, the 25th of December, as the first day of Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ and ending on the 5th or 6th of January, depending on which tradition is followed. However, most traditions hold the Feast of the Epiphany, the 6th of January, which is your birthday, as the 12th day of Christmas when the Magi brought gifts to the child Jesus. Very good. Pine needles are said to be rich in what vitamin? A, B, C, R, D. Vitamins A, vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin D. I am going to have to guess at this one, but I uh, I think maybe it's vitamin D. See? Yes. yes. Well, no, I'm not going to give you time to change your mind. Right. Excellent. It's Christmas. Yes. I'm determined to help you through here. <laughs> Answer is C. Pine needles are rich in vitamin C and they're reputed to contain up to three times more vitamin C than an orange. However, you would need a particular variety of white pine and it has to be boiled for a very long time to extract the vitamin and it's probably more pleasant Less bitter to eat and quicker to peel an orange. And the Native Americans used the needles to treat scurvy. Right, I'm going to stick with a wee mandarin orange. (laughs) My tree is safe. (laughs) Apart from children, St Nicholas, or Santa Claus, is the patron saint of which of the following dubious occupations? 
A. Prostitution B. Thievery or C. Pirating Prostitutes, thieves, pirates. Uh, do you know what? I think, I think maybe this is going to be one of your all threes, isn't it? Ah, very good. <laughs> yeah. I am determined to get you through because it's Christmas and I'm being good. <laughs> yes. Flash of inspiration there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of all three occupations, prostitutes, thieves, though repentant ones I might add, and pirates. And he's based on a real person, St. Nicholas of Myra, and he's the patron saint of a number of things, including sailors and New York City. He was born in Patara in modern-day Turkey during the 4th century, and artists have portrayed him more than any other saint with the exception of Mary, the mother of Christ. Hmm. So there you go. You're yeah. doing well so far. Let's see, can, uh, we, can we hold on no, to this lead? No, we can't. <laughs> the 12 Days of Christmas is one of the most popular carols of the season. But how many gifts have the true love actually been sent? Uh, Are, but had, how many of the gifts have actually been sent by the true love, I beg your pardon, by the end of the twelfth day? You don't need to know the presence, just how many? Two, six, four gifts, three, six, four gifts, four, six, four gifts. I have no idea and I'm just going to go with the first one, 264. Mm. No, no, did I just? Uh, you just, just spoiled your no. Yeah, the answer okay. is B. By the twelfth day of Christmas, the true love had dispatched three hundred and sixty-four gifts, and we can work it out this way. So bear with mm -hmm. me how I work yeah. it out. One partridge in a pear tree. Each of the twelve days. So that's right. one times twelve. 12, is 12. Two turtle doves on each of the last eleven days. Which is two elevens 22. is twenty two. Yeah, right. Three French hens. That was on each of the last ten days. So Sorry. that was three tens. Four calling birds on each of the last nine days. So that's four nines. Uh huh. Thirty six. Okay. okay. Five gold rings on each of the last eight days. For five eights are forty. Forty. Okay. Six geese lane on each of the last seven days was six sevens are 42. Seven swans are swimming on each of the last six days, which is seven sixes is 42. Eight maids are milking on each of the last five days, so eight fives are 40. Nine ladies dancing on each of the last four days is nine fours are 36. Ten lords are dancing on each of the last three days, which is ten threes or thirty. Eleven pipers piping on each of the last two days, which is eleven twos is twenty-two. And finally, twelve drummers drumming on the last day, one times twelve, which is twelve, giving a grand total of three hundred and sixty-four gifts. Yep. Right. So. All there right. you go. Okay. 364. Okay. Let's see, can you redeem yourself from this? One? <laughs> Which right. of the following reindeer from the poem Twas the Night Before Christmas was not not one of the original eight named reindeer named? A. Cupid, Cupid, Cupid <laughs> B. Dasher, and C. Rudolph. 
See, I think the one that would be hardest to rhyme with would be Rudolph, and it's a pretty rhymey poem. So I am going to say Rudolph. You are correct. The answer yeah. is C, not really because it was rhyming, but the answer is C. Rudolph is not one of the original reindeer mentioned in the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Comet, Cupid, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Donner and Blitzen, or Donder and Blixen, are the original reindeer mentioned in the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, which is alternatively entitled A Visit from St Nicholas. It was first published in 1823 and is commonly attributed to Clement Clark Moore, although some believe Henry Livingston was the true author. Rudolph was created later in 1939 by copywriter Robert May for the Montgomery Ward department store chain as the main character in a free Christmas promotional story which extended the poem and was subsequently turned into the popular song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Donner and Blitzen mean thunder and lightning in German. Yep. Okay. Very well, good. That was apart so from bad. the mathematical was question. Was that four out of five? Very good. Four out of four five. Out five. I'll four take out that. Out of five. Yeah. Very I good. I will take that one. I think that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you enjoyed all our stories. I do hope you enjoyed them. And do you know what? If if you have any feedback or you want to tell us, um, you want to wish us a happy Christmas or tell us that we did a particularly wonderful poem and a brilliant quiz, you want to give us any feedback at all, please do get in touch. You can email us on amyandflowshow at gmail.com that's A-M-Y and F-L-O show, all one word, at gmail.com and give us your feedback. So tonight's Christmas special stories, mine came from The Guardian, The Vintage Times. I think you had The Irish News. News. We had the Mindship blog. Um, and the Belfast Telegraph. And the Belfast Telegraph. So we've covered all of the bases and a good selection of of stories. They're not especially Christmassy, I don't think. Oh, I think they were. Perfectly entertaining, I think. Yeah, I and hope we you hope you enjoyed them. them. And we also hope you have a very, 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 very happy Jesus. Christmas. Have an extremely happy Christmas. And we will talk to you in the new year. So, Happy New Year as well. See you then. See you in 2022. 2022. <laughs> Bye. Bye.